Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined because it is the third Friday of the month by Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, Representative for the 1st Hampshire District. Representative Sabadosa, we are so pleased to have you today. So much to ask you about. We were talking just before we went on the air, so I'd like to continue that conversation. You and Buzz and I were talking about uh, Mifepristone, the relatively recent, I think the last few days, uh, decision by a federal court that said, well, yes, the most widely used abortion drug can be used, but it's subject to very, very serious restrictions, which would prevent many women from accessing abortion care. There are a number of aspects of this decision that directly relate to Massachusetts. We should note it's been stayed. It is not in effect. It's not going to happen, at least and until the Supreme Court makes its decision on this case. Uh, Massachusetts has a number of ways of trying to protect women in state who are seeking uh, reproductive abortion care and protecting out-of-state visitors who are here in the Commonwealth seeking abortion care. These are major issues in front of the Commonwealth, and I'd appreciate it if you would enlighten our listeners and bring us up to date on where those issues stand. Representative? Well, I thank you. Thank you for having me here today. And I really appreciate that you started off the segment by reassuring people that you can absolutely still access medication abortion, uh, certainly in Massachusetts and uh, by mail in pretty much every state uh, in the United States right now. Um, and that's important for people to know because when we see headlines like the ruling that came out of the Fifth Circuit, people immediately think they don't have access. But the Supreme Court stayed the ruling before this case even hit the Fifth Circuit. So we knew that no matter what happened, access was going to remain the same. What the Fifth Circuit did was um, I, probably, it, it, first of all, not at all surprising. We knew that a bad ruling was going to come out of this court. This is an extremely conservative circuit. This is why the case was brought to Texas, so that on appeal it would go to this circuit. And why um, it was brought and, before that judge in Texas, who they, course, the, 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 the anti, anti-choice people said, we're going to win there. We can't possibly lose in front of that judge. And when that judge rules for us, we're going to go to the Fifth Circuit, and we're going to win there. So two for two. With just one more court to go. Well, and, and you know, to be to be fair, they did not actually win. I think the way they would have liked to in the Fifth Circuit, um, but there are some indications from uh, from a concurring opinion about what this case is really about. So, in the Fifth Circuit, they basically said you cannot take medication abortion off the market. The statute of limitations has run out for you to try to say the FDA was wrong to approve the drug in the first place. However, the court did say that they were able to challenge some of the recent loosening of restrictions around medication abortion. So they told, uh, the court basically said, you can go back to 2016 and repeal all of the loosening of the regulations. So that would mean if their ruling were to go in effect, which let's emphasize it has not, uh, that you would have to go to a doctor um, that you would have to have three appointments. So you would have to first have an ultrasound. You would have to go to the doctor to take the first part of the medication procedure. And then you'd have to go back to the doctor to take the second part of the medication procedure. So three appointments. And the doc and there could be no mailing of the medication and you could only go to a doctor. Now that's really important because I think, I hope listeners know that Massachusetts and many, many other states have 
with FDA approval, allowed individuals other than physicians to prescribe medication abortions, such as nurses, such as midwives. So this is very common in the country. It would really, really hinder access were this ruling to stay in effect. The interesting part of the case, though, I think is Judge Ho, who wrote a concurring opinion, but was very angry with the majority. It's a it's a three um, three justice bench in the Fifth Circuit. And so he agreed that uh, medication abortion should have those restrictions. But in his opinion, medication abortion should be totally removed from the market because he took the, uh, the position that a fetus is a person from the moment of conception, which is the argument that the anti-choice movement, many in the anti-choice movement, not all, but many of them have been making if you go right back to Roe, in fact, if you if you read the or listen to, actually really interesting to listen to, the oral arguments in Roe v. Wade, the representative for the attorney general in that case from Texas argued that Roe should never have gone, that Texas was totally right to restrict abortion because a fetus is a person from the moment of conception. If we think about what that means, that feels a little crazy because um, you know, what, what, what does that actually mean? Fetuses, you know, can't buy houses, they can't own property, they can't get insurance, they, they don't have the constitutional rights. And in fact, if we go back to Roe, what the court said was the Constitution talks about people after they are born, not before they are born. But the argument of the anti-choice movement has long been a fetus is a person and therefore abortion is murder. And that's where a lot of this argument comes from and what we saw in this case. Let's back up for just a second. I want to uh, emphasize what Representative Lindsay Sabadosa has just said, which is the argument that a fetus is a person, this argument of fetal personhood carries with us the implication that the fetus is more important in consideration than the mother. And of course, they're not actually talking about a fetus. They're talking about a fertilized egg is a person with more rights than the mother. That's really, or the person bearing this child, really quite extraordinary argument, but it has some currency in the Supreme Court. And just to go back to one thing that the representative was saying, this argument in the Texas court, now in the Fifth Circuit, on its way to the Supreme Court, has to do first with the initial approval of mifepristone uh, as, a, as a drug, I think some 23 years ago. And so when the mm -hmm. representative says the statute of limitations has run on that, you can't challenge the FDA's initial approval, which, of course, was exactly what this case started with. But, says the court, there are things that have happened in the last seven years and anything that's happened in the last seven years to make the abortion drug available, that's not proper and that can be challenged. And that is the way in which more than half of the abortions in the United States take place. So, in fact, although they didn't get everything they want, the abortion opponents did win a big victory for themselves in the Fifth Circuit, I think. Well, and more than that, they now have the opportunity to bring this case before the Supreme Court. And if you watch the court, which I think I've admitted on here, I really love watching the court, <laughs> um, you you will see that the court, you know, with, with Dobbs kind of said, like, we think we're done with this. The court is by no means done deciding on abortion-related cases. There are many that are going to come its way. We're talking about this case related to Mifepristone. There is another case right now about a federal law that uh, prohibits people from blocking access to medical facilities. It doesn't relate to abortion only. 
only. It's all medical facilities. But of course, someone was arrested because they barricaded the door to an abortion clinic. And that law is, is going to go through, I'm sure, and end up before the Supreme Court. We also have a lawsuit in Texas right now where um, anti-choice advocates are trying to sue Planned Parenthood, claiming that they defrauded Medicaid. It's already been decided that they didn't defraud Medicaid, but they you know, court shopped, as we saw with the Mifepristone case. And there is yet another case that will be moving through the courts. So I think we can anticipate that there will be many cases related to abortion that end up before this court, making the 2024 election more important than ever. I'm hoping, Representative Sabadoso, you could clarify this for me. What I didn't understand when I looked at this opinion from the three-judge panel in the Fifth Circuit is apparently that currently Mifepristone has been approved by the FDA for up to 10 weeks uh, of the 10th week of pregnancy. And this opinion drops it back when it, and if it goes into effect, to the seventh week. But then I read in Massachusetts quite often, doctors prescribe it for the first trimester, throughout the first trimester, which is more like 16 weeks. So I'm not clear about how that works. Do you understand that? So it goes back to the 2016 regulations. Uh, the FDA had approved mifepristone in 2016 for up to seven, prior to 2016 rather, for up to seven weeks. In 2016, they changed the recommendation for up to 10. However, doctors do have discretion in, prescription, in prescribing, and so many doctors have now prescribed up until 12 weeks. There's a little bit of fuzziness. There's a lot of science in pregnancy, but there's also not a lot of science in pregnancy. I mean, this take it back to the fetal personhood question, right? A person becomes a person upon conception, but what does that mean? Does that mean the second sperm enters an egg, or does that mean when the egg implants? There are, so when we're talking about the number of weeks one is pregnant, that is often hard to determine. But doctors have often said up to 12 weeks is perfectly safe. And because doctors have that discretion, a lot of legal experts are saying that part of the ruling is not really going to have any effect in places like Massachusetts. So I guess a listener who's who, uh, a woman who's uh, in the situation where she's interested in using a drug, the answer right now is just listen to your doctor and do what your exactly. doctor says. Yeah. Representative Sabadosa, I would appreciate you spending a minute with us on what the Massachusetts legislature and the executive branch have done to try to protect women both in the state and those coming to the state from these intrusive and hopefully unconstitutional and or illegal restrictions on abortion. Tell us about that, if you would, please. Well, I, I'll first remind listeners that the state has stockpiled mifepristone, so we have a year's supply of it in the state so irrespective of what happens if the case gets to the supreme court and there's there's a problem really the court can't pull authorization from of, of the drug but they can put more restrictions around it so we've made sure that we have plenty of medication um, in our state which i think is really important we've also passed laws um, to protect the privacy of patients and doctors and physicians who are uh, prescribing within the state of massachusetts as well as traveling into the state of massachusetts now i i will say and i probably shouldn't say this because i should be celebrating all the great things we do but these cases have this hasn't been tested in court yet and i think this is really the crux of the problem with the dobbs decision when you throw things back to the states 
the law in Kansas is really different than the law in Massachusetts. We have yet to see a patient travel from another state to a state where abortion is easily accessible and be prosecuted in their home state. So we have to see how that will all play out in court. But at least in theory, according to statute, there are protections for patients. And are you anticipating more litigation about this specific topic? You say that the Supreme Court, and I agree, the Supreme Court said, okay, we're done, except that, of course, the decision itself actually says, come back to us because we've got lots more decisions to make because we know, (laughs) really, I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. I guess my real question for you is anything more on the plate of the Massachusetts legislature at this point with regard to protecting reproductive rights? I mean, the big thing that I think we haven't done yet is more around patient privacy. And I I believe I've spoken about it here before, but I really think there, there are a number of proposals. One of them is mine around health data privacy. There's also a great proposal around um, preventing the sale of location information um, on cell phones. Those proposals need to be joined together and they need to be passed because that's the part that we're missing. Very few states have done this. We were, I believe, the second state in the country that passed a shield law. We now have Washington and Illinois and Connecticut that have moved forward with um, with data privacy, particularly focused on patients and health and non-HIPAA-related health data. But that's going to be really critical, I think, and the next step to making sure people feel safe. And to clarify this, one of the bills would prevent the data, the tracking data, because your cell phone tracks where you wherever you go, and if someone comes from out of state, and that information, that data is generally for sale, and those companies want to sell that information, and law enforcement in other states that prohibit abortions want to go after those people seeking an abortion here in Massachusetts. And so protecting that data, that privacy, is in fact crucial in order to protect the right for reproductive choice here in Massachusetts. Absolutely. I mean, and, and we've seen this already play out. I mean, we, there's the case of the mother and daughter in Nebraska who were both arrested for obtaining, uh, for the mother helping the daughter obtain an abortion. All of that information was procured from their cell phones and from their social media conversations. We are speaking with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. We'll be back more with the representative right after this. Much more than More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org slash solarloans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org slash solarloans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Do you know a woman of impact? 
Nominate her now for the Business West Women of Impact Awards, honoring women who are respected for accomplishments in their professional life, who give back to the community, and are sought out as advisors and mentors. Business West is looking for the 2023 Women of Impact. Help Business West discover them. Go to businesswest.com to nominate a woman you know making an impact in the community. The deadline to nominate is September 5th. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our, our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, representative for the 1st Hampshire District, which includes what? Municipalities? Representative? So, Northampton, Chesterfield, Cummington, Hatfield, Plainfield, Williamsburg, Worthington, um, I oh, just played Williamsburg, you... Worthington, West Hampton, and Goshen. There we go. There you go. <laughs> oh, why don't you just do it in alphabetical order? Then you'll I remember. I was trying, but I, I, the W's, I was, it's, it's, I'm still drinking coffee. I mean, when, yeah, and when you get to the W's, you're near the end of the alphabet. It should be easier, not harder, really. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I would like to ask you, Representative Sabadosa, about a couple of matters involving uh, money. And in particular, the proposal that the governor seems to be supporting that says short-term capital gains, that is somebody buys a stock on Monday for $100, sells it on Wednesday for $1,000, makes a $900 gain, that that short-term capital gain, that's what it is, should be taxed at a lower rate. And it's not a proposal that has gotten much enthusiasm, at least from the progressives, as I understand in the state, but I'd appreciate it if you tell us where that proposal stands and what your position is on it. Well, it is it is true that this is um, something that the governor has proposed. It was part of uh, a tax package that she's asked the legislature to take up. And I will say the governor's position is that this tax package is all about making Massachusetts more competitive. So um, I'm stating what, what I've heard her opinion is, not necessarily mine, um, but she has made the strong argument that um, we need to pass some sort of tax reform in order to keep people in Massachusetts. Now, this legislation has passed the House, um, a version of it, and a version of it has passed the Senate. The House version has the short-term capital gains uh, cuts that she wanted, and the Senate version does not. And that bill is now currently with a conference committee. It is a very, I think a very tricky time to be talking about tax reform for a couple of reasons. Um, I'm very glad, first of all, that we did the budget before we did taxes, um, because I think you, you know, that that was the the priority and that needed to be done. I think holding off on the tax bill um, has been wise because the economic picture in the state is changing pretty rapidly. Um, you know, I don't 
believe that we are in a recession and I certainly hope that we have more of the soft landing that we've probably heard economists talk about on television, but we do know that the federal money that helped during the COVID pandemic has dried up. We know that we're not getting more of it. In fact, I'm not quite sure what Congress is doing, but it's definitely not handing out a lot of money to states at the moment. So with all of that, we have to figure out what programs we as a state can continue to fund if there are places that we're going to have to make cuts um, and how much money we're going to be able to bring in. So, Representative Sabadosa, I have a remedial question. <clears throat> excuse, sure. excuse my ignorance in advance. The state legislature has passed a budget, right? Yes. The House passed it. The Senate passed it. The governor signed it. Okay. Yes. But there are still these major considerations regarding revenue and how much money there will be to spend. How can the state pass a budget, use that as a blueprint for spending, if it doesn't know yet how much money it's going to have in revenue? So the state does have an idea of how much money it's going to have in revenue because that's what the House and Senate Ways and Means Committee, they both work on at the very start of the session. The governor's office, the Department of Administration and Finance, along with those two committees, works to figure out what the what they call the consensus revenue. So they put all their heads together and they say, this is what we think we're going to bring in during this year, and we can base the budget off of that number. Now, when you're talking about doing a tax package, whether before, after, or during the budget, you have to take into account how much that package is going to change what your consensus revenue is. This is always, and I think people who, um, who who do budgets, you know, even for their own home, you know, this is something that is always able to change. I mean, something could happen, a disaster could happen in a few months, they're going to, would change where the state needs to spend. And so we do have mechanisms to adjust and reduce our, to increase and reduce our spending rather, as necessary as we go along. We hope that that doesn't happen, at least in my tenure in the state house, it has not. But these things have happened if economic recessions hit in the middle of a fiscal year. This is why I think there's been a lot of caution about the tax package and the size of it in particular. And I think it's important for people to know, you'll, you'll see in the press, like this tax, this tax cut will um, reduce, uh, will you know, allow for this amount of money or will actually equal X number of dollars, but we don't ever really know that. So a lot of this is a little bit of a guessing game until we have the final numbers on the table. So I'm not sure that was helpful to your remedial question, though. No, it was. Thank you. It, it was, and, and it just inspires uh, the obvious, which is we've had these unbelievable weather crises that we've been enduring and damage to our farms and our highways and and municipal buildings is obvious, and we have winter coming on. So uh, we hear talk about supplemental budgets. How does that happen? If something happens in your district, do you request a supplemental amount of money to deal with this unforeseen crisis? Something like that can happen. Generally, the supplemental budgets are filed by the governor, so you would work with the governor's office to get a supplemental budget and then you work with house or senate ways and means to include different items into it but more often than not supplemental budgets are done to if there's an additional spending need to make sure that that's covered so they don't generally happen in the instances that you're talking about but it is always possible 
We are going to leave it there. We have been spending our time with Representative Lindsay Sapadosa, representative from the 1st Hampshire District. We will not ask her to give the municipalities she represents in reverse alphabetical <laughs> order because she is still drinking her coffee. Thank you very much. Next time. <laughs> it's a sobriety test. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Representative. Really appreciate your time and insight. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. All eyes are on the Iron Horse Music Hall after Mass Live reported that signature sounds in the parlor room are in talks to potentially buy the quintessential Northampton music venue. Jim Olson, the founder and president of Signature Sounds, went public with their hopes to buy the venue this week. But it's not a done deal and other businesses are also interested. Since the pandemic, most of the music venues owned by real estate mogul Eric Sewer have sat vacant, including the Iron Horse, the Calvin Theater, the Basement, and Pearl Street Nightclub. In February, the Northampton License Commission revoked the liquor license for the Pearl Street music venue due to its failure to reopen and threatened to do the same for Sewer's other music venues unless they reopen with some frequency. Sewer says he's been unable to fully reopen his venues due to staffing shortages and the inability to book music acts that turn a profit for his businesses. A 10-year-old child who was shot in Springfield earlier this week has tragically passed away, according to the Hampton District Attorney's Office. On Monday afternoon, a neighbor, identified as 34-year-old Victor Nieves, shot himself, a woman, and two children in their apartment on Berkshire Avenue. 52-year-old Kim Fairbanks of Springfield and Nieves were both found dead on the floor from gunshot wounds. Fairbanks was the grandmother of three siblings that were found in a bedroom, ages 12, 10, and 5 two of which were injured by gunshots and taken to the hospital. The 10-year-old girl was flown to Boston Children's Hospital, where she passed away Thursday morning. The 12-year-old girl who was shot is in stable condition at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield. The 5-year-old boy was unharmed. A town meeting will be held on Monday to discuss lowering the speed limit in West Springfield. Mayor Will Reicheld said on social media that the town council is considering reducing the town's speed limit from 30 to 25 miles per hour. The town has implemented other safety measures in recent months, including speed bumps along Amos Town Road. The hearing will be held Monday at 7 p.m. in the town hall auditorium for residents to voice their comments and concerns. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back, hoping you'll never have a claim, because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door's open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. Your local agent working in partnership with Arbella Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance.
Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip, or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all-natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work again like they're supposed to. And there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option. And the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450. Welcome back to Talk the Talk. This is our time with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max, very exciting news this week, a consolidation of forces with regard to the question and the issue that we've talked about before many times on the show, which is MCAS. Bring us up to date. Tell us what has happened and then give us your prognosis for this ballot question next November. Sure, Bill. So the the the, the, the news of this week is that um, the the other MCAS ballot initiative that was initiated by Shelley Scruggs from Lexington and a, a number of other parents um, that she's affiliated with uh, have sort of chosen to join up with our ballot initiative, ours being uh, one that's being led by the Massachusetts Teachers Association. So there will really be only one effort to gather signatures this fall. We we shared the same values and share the same goals. And so it's terrific that there will be really just one effort going forward. So there will be one question on the ballot in 2024 about MCAS. Is that right? Well, our goal is to gather the requisite signatures, um, over 75,000 certified signatures by the end of November. And then if there's no resolution in the legislature, then we would go to the ballot. And so I mean, that's the way our system works is once you've gathered the signatures, that ballot initiative gets presented to the legislature. It must be evaluated and something happen by the legislature. They can decide to say, yeah, we'll pass that bill or we'll or we'll pass that bill with some slight modifications and that might resolve it. We would love that. We'd be fine with that. But we're also fully prepared to go to the ballot um, to end the the high stakes MCAS graduation requirement. Okay, let's just back up for one second. If there's a ballot question, and such as the one that the Massachusetts Teachers Association is proposing and that you now have more allies in supporting, if that were to pass, that would become a law. It's the same thing. It's like the legislature voting on a law, except it's the people voting on a law. Is that right? That's exactly right. It is a law. That's why it first gets... In our system, it first gets presented to the legislature and says, hey, do you want to pass this? And often in the past, there's been negotiations and they'll say, well, you know, we'll we'll do all of it, but we want to make this change. And there's really it's really up to the 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 group, the coalition leading the ballot initiative. And that would be us leading this. But there's a broad coalition saying, you know what, that compromise is acceptable. It really accomplishes 90 percent of our goal. An example of that was around the fifteen dollar minimum wage. We did not need to go to the ballot, even though we had collected the signatures to raise the state's minimum wage. But the legislature worked out at that point. It was called the grand bargain because it included multiple pieces. 
but essentially the coalition said, you know what, we are make we are going to get to fifteen dollar minimum wage, that that achieves our goal, so we are not going to go to the ballot. So, that is a conversation, but. I mean, we want to be crystal clear that the MTA would not start on down this path unless we were convinced it would win and we were willing to go to the ballot if necessary. And be specific with us, Max, if you would, please. What is the ballot question or and or that piece of legislation that will go before the legislature for its consideration? What does it say? What does it do? It's very short. All it says is that the MCAS will not be the determination of whether a student gets a high school diploma. Instead, local districts will certify through their teachers' grades, through the curriculum, that students have met the high state standards and deserve a high school diploma. So the test will still exist. I need to repeat that because the MCAS, a standardized test, is required by federal law. It will still be uh, offered, provided, and will provide maybe some diagnostic value, but it will not be the determination of whether a student gets a high school diploma. That's it. Max, Massachusetts is one of the few states that actually has the standardized test, continues to have a standardized test requirement for a high school diploma. It seems to me, and I'd appreciate your perspective on this, that that eliminating MCAS as a requirement actually makes Massachusetts a more inviting, more egalitarian, better uh, educated workforce state. Um, And we were talking before we came on the air for just a few minutes about the short-term capital gains tax, the millionaire's tax or the fair share amendment, and more broadly, the studies that have recently done that show that Massachusetts has risen to the top tier of business-friendly, entrepreneurial-friendly states. And I'm wondering if you could kind of square that circle for us. Yeah, so this is uh, this is really, uh, we'll make the kind of uh, right-wing anti-tax uh, business and millionaire and billionaire groups angry. But CNBC does an annual America's Top States for Business. Um, and... Massachusetts came in 15th place. It jumped from 24th place to 15th place. Let me be clear about that. In the wake of the fair share amendment, this is the tax on, you know, over of people making over $1 million a year in income. It adds an additional surtax. That's the fair share amendment. Since that, since we passed that, uh, we have climbed dramatically nine places in CNBC's ranking for business climate. This is so important because the the other side, the Mass High Tech Council and other retrograde groups who were saying, oh, this tax is gonna be the end of the world, the fair share amendment is gonna lead to millionaires leaving, it's gonna make us less business friendly, um, were wrong. That in fact, over and over again, it's been shown, and this this CNBC um, list is just one more example of that, that what business wants is a well-educated workforce, an open, welcoming place to live, uh, lots of culture. There's a lot of reasons that business um, will want to locate and stay somewhere, and very little of it, or way down the list, is tax rates. And this proves that once again. Well, I I just want to go back to the MCAS question again. because you are an educator, you've lived your entire life around UMass and, and, and around education. I came into education, I, for 17 years I taught at Greenfield Community College, 
as an attorney who was, became a teacher. And early on, I did what I had learned from my own experience, which is I had a midterm test in my courses, and then I had a final test. And then I talked to students the second semester that I was going to have them and talk to them about what we had done the first semester in the course that was a prerequisite for the one they were then taking. And I learned they didn't remember very much at all. What they remembered is when they wrote essays during the course of the semester, that those cumulative tests, which are just, as you say, high-stakes tests, learning doesn't happen. Memorization happens. Fear happens. And the people that are best able to handle that do better than the ones who didn't. So I, it's just so important for listeners to really understand when we talk about a graduation requirement of those high-stakes tests, it's, it doesn't improve Massachusetts standing as having an educated for workforce. That's right. And by the way, you know, I spoke to a teacher just yesterday and she was talking about how her, her, in her district, they use up 24 days um, on the testing. Uh, between the testing days themselves as well as the, the practice tests and the test prep, 24 days out of our 180-day school year is spent preparing for or taking these tests. And if I could just, you know, bring it back. Could you stop well, there for one I second, Max? Stop. That's 24 days out of 180, right? Yeah. Are some are are taken up either with the tests themselves or the practice tests or the test preparation. So our mantra has long been more learning, less testing. Uh, you know, I took the California test of basic skills when I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, public schools. And, you know, they, they flew in one day. We took a test. Maybe they provided some diagnostic value, and that's what we want the MCAS maybe to, to be, not this high-stakes test that kind of consumes a school district and makes people focus on their curriculum around those areas and you know, prepare for the tests um, ad nauseum. Hey, Max, let's, let's return, if we might, to this question of taxes. We were speaking with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa earlier in the show about uh, the millionaires... Uh, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to put it that way, about short-term capital gains, people who buy a stock on Monday, sell it on Wednesday, make a big chunk of money. It's called short-term capital gains because it's less than a year. It's not really investing. It's just playing the market. It's gambling. That's most of what short-term capital gains are. That said, the governor, a liberal, a liberal, a progressive governor, has proposed and the House of Representatives has passed a bill a revenue bill that reduces the amount of the percentage of taxes that will be paid on short-term capital gains. I know you have feelings about this, so share them. <laughs> I have very strong feelings, and I'm hoping, I unfortunately couldn't hear Rep. Sabadosa, I'm hoping she's working, speaking out and working very hard um, to stop that from going forward in the House of Representatives. Um, I have lots to admire about the governor, but she's simply wrong on this issue. The idea that we should give away a half a billion dollars in tax cuts to the short to the short term capital gains um, is simply uh, simply wrong. It is not the, the kind of uh, the way we need to spend that money. It's essentially saying we're going to spend that money. We're going to re- we're going to give back this money. And you, you caught yourself, Bill, you said millionaires and he said, no, short term capital gains. It is millionaires. The vast majority of short-term capital gains are held by the top 1%. may not be all millionaires. They may be making $700,000 a year, $800,000 a year. These are very, very wealthy people. And what um, 
what the study that I just mentioned shows, um, and then a, another new study that just came out showing that millionaires do not flee because of tax rates, shows that this is just throwing money away. Instead, think of the things we could do with that half a billion dollars a year. For instance, debt-free public higher education, universal, guarantee that every resident of the Commonwealth could go to a two or four year college and graduate debt-free would cost around a half a billion dollars. So right there, that's, and that is by far the best investment we could possibly make over the short and long-term economic health of the Commonwealth. Forget the kind of development of our people and their, their, their the, the culture and the intellectual life and the civic engagement, just purely on an economic level, um, investing in high quality debt-free public higher education uh, would be an enormous boon, not a giveaway to the rich. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association that has been our segment, Your State You, back with Donna Belcasas and Artbeat right after this. <clears throat> Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. A Northampton man contends with his slow passage into blindness. What's that like? Andrew Leland's new book, The Country of the Blind, is part memoir, part historical and cultural investigation. Leland's determined not to merely survive the transition, but to revel in that which makes blindness enlightening, accepting uncertainty, connecting with others across differences. Warm and funny, The Country of the Blind is an exhilarating tour of a way of being most of us have never paused to consider. Pick up The Country of the Blind at Northampton's independent book Bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Performance 33, The Elements. August 22nd, Pines Theater, Look Park. Celebrate 33 years of bringing our community together to support music and the arts in our public schools. 4.30 to 9.30, we'll celebrate the power of science and weather with The Elements. 20 local hero bands take on the personas of artists like Neil Diamond, Credence Clearwater Revival, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, Aerosmith, and Schoolhouse Rock. Performance 33 at Pines Theater, Look Park, Florence, Mass., August 22nd. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at WeinzickNursery.com. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. Welcome to Artbeat with Donabel Cassis. We turn the mic over to Donabel for the introductions, the pleasure of the introductions of today's very special guest, Donabel. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. 
You know, there's a photography exhibit up at Hosmer Gallery through the month of August. It's in the Forbes Library in Northampton. In it, you can see works by three photographers, Richard Gettler, Sally Greenbaum, and Rob Weir. Today, we are joined by one of the photographers, Richard Gettler. Thank you so much for coming today. Thanks for having me, Donna Bell. Now, Richard, you say you come from a family of people watchers. What does that mean? Well, my mother in particular loved to sit on a bench or in a cafe and watch people walking by and just admire their, you know, their face, their posture, everything about them. It's easy to imagine what their lives are like just by watching them walk by. Ah, so she's obviously made a big impression on you. Um, you've also studied with Minor White, um, considered one of America's greatest photographers, along with Alfred Stieglitz and Ansel Adams. What is the most impactful aspect of his photography and teachings do you take with you when you work? You know, uh, he, he was an amazing person and uh, classes with him back in college weren't even just about photography. They were, you know, life experiences. And he was very much about emotion and what you can read from a photo. Uh, he wasn't necessarily a people photographer, but, you know, just in a rock or a stone, he could find, uh, a, you know, a work of art. And it was, he was a true inspiration. Well, what, first of all, how did you choose photography as your medium? I know you have other amazing talents, but photography right now is one of your biggest ones. How did you choose using the lens uh, as your muse? I've loved photography my entire life, but didn't really take it up seriously until 2012. Um, I, I met some people, joined the photography club, um, got very serious about it, started doing it professionally. Uh, I do a lot of event photography, uh, family and personal portraits, things like that. But uh, by far my favorite thing to photograph is people. Uh, mm -hmm. I do you know, landscapes and nature photography, but what I love about people photography is that every photo tells a story. You know, to me, the, the two most important things in a photograph are number one, does it have impact? Number two, what story does it tell? And people's faces, their clothing, their posture, their, you know, bravado just tell so much about them. You can capture it in a moment. It doesn't have to be a video, but a single moment of that person's presence can really tell a story. Could we go back to the show at the Hosmer Gallery at Forbes Library for a moment? I'd like to know, following up on Donabelle's question, what the show is titled, um, what is in the show, and whether it has and contains these images of people that you were just describing to us. Sure, yeah, I have 19 photos and it's titled Street Portraits. Um, people are fairly familiar with street photography where a photographer goes out and captures candid moments of people, you know, uh, engaging with each other on the street, walking down the street. Street portraits are a little bit different in that the photographer generally engages with the, uh, the subject as they're interacting with, uh, with their environment. So I have, you know, photos in the show. I have one titled 101 Years in Style. I was walking past a house and this um, elderly woman with purple streaks all through her hair was standing there and her, and her daughter was there and told me the woman was 101 years old. Um, and I just loved her style. So I called that one 101 years in style. Uh, there's one I call when push comes to shove. I was driving down a street uh, in a cab 
And down the side street, I saw four men pushing a car into a garage, an old car, which clearly wasn't running anymore. So I asked the taxi to stop, got my long lens out, took the photo out the window, and that's a photo that's in the exhibit as well. So they're just various. So that one's more street photography than street portrait, but 90% of the ones there are street portraits. Now, you travel a lot, Richard, and I know that because some, a lot of these portraits don't look like they're from here. Um, are a majority of them not from here? Are, you, are these on the road? You know, good question. When, when I was looking to, you know, select photos to put in this exhibit, I was looking for the best street portraits I've taken over the years. And almost 50% of them turned out to be photos from Cuba. I think, <laughs> I, I think uh, the people I met in Cuba were just so fascinating and so engaged. Um, there was a gentleman sitting on the curb and I sat and talked to him uh, for 15 minutes. I was trying to remember my Spanish, which I hadn't practiced in many years. And he started telling me about how, uh, how difficult it was to live on a small pension he had. And, and we just had a wonderful conversation. I asked if I could take his photo. I was sitting down on the curb with him. Um, so, you know, sometimes these photos from a low angle are, are, you know, very impactful. I have photos in the exhibit from Montreal, from New York City, uh, other parts of New York. So I have traveled a bit and a lot of the photos are from my travels. From your travels. I mean, they, they are quite stunning, the attention to detail. And I am sort of drawn by the color in your work. You really seem to capture the flavor of the setting and the situation. And I can see how, how, how Cuba would be really impactful for you because of the vibrancy of the area and the people. I mean, you really do have quite the knack for capturing their essence. Um, how long is this show up and uh, where can folks see it? The show is up through August 30th, and it's at the Hosmer Gallery in the Forbes Library in Northampton on the second floor, right next to the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Library. Could I ask one more question about your, the influences on your uh, art, on your photography? Specifically, I would have thought that Richard Avedon, who I had the great pleasure of meeting years ago, um, it was in his known of course, he's passed quite quite a few years ago, um, is really influential on many portrait photographers and street photographers. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Uh, certainly, you know, what, what an amazing photographer he was. Uh, you know, my early influences besides minor white were, um, you know, Cartier-Bresson and the, um, uh, you know, that moment of impact that he, he would talk about. Uh, Edward Weston, uh, even though he wasn't necessarily a, a people photographer. I loved his work. So those, those were kind of my early influences. And do you get permission from people to take their photos before you do it? Or do you take the photos and then ask if you can have it? Uh, some of each. Um, mostly for street portraits, I, you know, ask permission. Street photography, you know, much less so because you're trying to catch, a, uh, you know, capture a candid moment. So it's quite different. Richard, where can folks see your work online? Do you have a website they can go to if they can't catch the show? I do have a website at uh, richardgetler.com, and I'm also on Instagram at rgetler. That's uh, R-G-E-T-L-E-R. Richard, do you do mostly black and white, or do you photograph in color? I do mostly color. I actually went on a, a black and white uh, workshop recently, and I really struggled with it because <laughs> I, I see in color. It's really much more my... Uh, my natural instinct is, is to enjoy the color and, and the composition is very much about the color as well. 
I think it would be a really great challenge actually to do a series of black and white uh, photography, Richard, because it really does sort of pare it down to the basic elements of just, you know, the contrast, the composition and, and whatnot. But um, these are striking portraits. Um, they, are, they, they do tell a story and that's what, why I was particularly drawn to your work, Richard. And I really appreciate that you are sharing your work with us today. Could we well, spend- thank you, Donna Bell. Thank you, Bill. Let's spend one more minute because we have it. When you say the photograph tells a story, what do you mean? Um, you can uh, imagine what's going on as you're looking at the photograph. So there's, you know, there's no video, there's no timeline, but you can imagine the moments before, the moments after, what the person was doing. I, again, that's why I like people photography so much because, uh, you know, a, a person's face says so much about, you know, where they've come from, you know, what their joys are, uh, what their experience has been, you know, the whole human predicament. I, I, I see in a human face. Wait, I'm, cu I'm curious, Richard, I don't see any self-portraits. Uh, <laughs> will no, there be? No, I don't take any self-portraits. <laughs> <laughs> Donabelle, tell us one more time where the exhibit is, where, when we can see it, please. Yes, so uh, you could see Richard Gettler's work as well as Sally Greenbaum and Rob Weir's work at a photography exhibit up at the second floor Hosmer Gallery in Forbes Library in Northampton through August 30th. Richard Gettler, thank you so much again for joining us today and good luck with your photography. Thank you. And thank you, Donna Bell. This has been Artbeat. The beat goes on. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, greasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the three billion pizza boxes used annually in the US. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. WHMP North. Their comments and concerns. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we are so lucky, Bill, um, in the past, and we have him now. We have Dr. Jonathan uh, Bayuk. He's, uh, he, he's a member of the Allergy and Immunology Associates of New England. He is an educator who teaches residents at Bay State and at Tufts University, and he teaches uh, physician assistants, uh, aspirants down at Springfield College, and he is the go-to guy on all things uh, COVID and related uh, viruses. Thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Bayek. My pleasure. Well, it is our pleasure. So here we are, soon heading into our fourth autumn, and that's a season for flu and other respiratory viruses and 
still we have this COVID-19 thing lurking. What, what do you foresee the fall and the winter bringing in terms of a resurgence of these dreadful viruses? I think the good news is, is that, you know, it's not going to be as bad as it has been in the past, I don't think. Um, things could always change. The variants continue to vary, uh, become more and more varied. Uh, right now, we have um, the, the current most prevalent one is called EG.5. Yeah, well, you say that a little slower for me because I get so confused. Say it so I could remember it. <laughs> okay, that's going to be tough because it's all it's all garbly book letters and numbers. But I'll, um, So basically, uh, the most the most prevalent variant right now is an Omicron variant that has a name called EG.5, but it's also been called the Eris variant. The one that we have the new vaccine for, which is going to be hopefully FDA approved within the next month, is for one just before that, which has another garbly good name called XBB.1.5. And that's what's going to happen as the nomenclature changes. You're going to have all these letters and numbers that don't necessarily make a lot of sense, but I'm sure that the, the media will come up with nicknames for them. But what is an the, Omicron virus? What does that mean? So the that's one that's one that's a larger. All right. So initially, so we have COVID nineteen, right? The when the COVID first came out, it was the alpha variant. So we just start using Greek letters in order to to name them. Then over time, it's varied, which is normal for viruses to do. They always it's called anticipation, and they and they as they go through populations of people, they will change, and they usually change. Uh, in a way to make themselves more contagious, although it doesn't always happen, and sometimes the reverse happens. So Omicron is way down the list of Greek letters, and Omicron has been the one that we've had now for quite a while. The bivalent vaccines that we had a year plus ago uh, were for that, uh, and that was the last one. On all the vaccines we had before are a little outdated. They're still helpful, but they're a little outdated. So what's happening now is the, the same companies, at least three companies, Pfizer, Moderna, and uh, Novavax are coming out with a variant that is specific to the most common one that was here a few months ago, but that's already changed. The good news is, is that the new vaccine will help with the most prevalent one we have now and the one for that actual vaccine is still also prevalent. It's just not the most common one. Does that so, make sense? It does make sense. But do you think we should um, hold off and uh, and wait for this new one to be approved by the FDA yes. to deal with this Omicron virus? We're weeks away. So, yes. I mean, in, unless you haven't had any vaccines, which at this point is pretty uncommon because if people are going to get the vaccine, I think they've pretty much would have that by now, um, maybe some small exceptions. But the amount of vaccines that have been given out in the last several months has dramatically fallen. So I would, I am, I've had all the vaccines and I'm going to wait until the next one comes out in about a month or so. It should be, by October, it should be here. Uh, doctor, could you retrace those steps briefly for me? I would like to know whether or not the vaccines that have been available and the next one that will be available actually are effective about to 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 prevent us us being infected with the newest variant of the omicron virus 
So none of the vaccines are ever intended to prevent infection. They're there to mitigate the symptoms. Now, there are certainly people who have not been sick and that is likely because of the vaccines, but that's the intent is to lessen that, just like the flu shot. It's not to protect you from getting it, it's to help your immune system get rid of it faster and make your symptoms much better. So the answer to your question is that if you had the previous vaccines, and keep in mind that there's been the original set, and then there was the bivalent, and now we have this new one that's coming out, then there's some variations within the type of vaccine as far as the mechanism that it works. But you still have protection against COVID, but it's not as sharp as it would have been when the first vaccine came out. The new vaccine should be much better at the new vac at the new variants that we have. We also hear about this new threat. Uh, maybe it's not a new threat. This new to me, which is RSV. What is RSV? How how concerned should we be, and how do we prevent uh, or mitigate uh, the infection caused by RSV? So RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. It's not new. Been around for as long as I'm aware of medicine, been tracking viruses. It's usually a bigger threat, a much bigger threat in newborns and young, very young children, ages one and two, maybe three. And it causes a bronchiolitis, which is similar to a pneumonia, but a little bit different. The RSV in the last few years, probably because there was so little infection some older folks, and specifically older folks, people over 60, were getting very sick and dying from RSV, which really wasn't happening before we had this pandemic in any kind of large way. So in response to that, there is a new vaccine that's available and that should help. It's pretty new, um, and that is, it's, you can get it, and the indication is age 60 and above. Um, so I am hearing, and I don't know whether it's accurate or not, I'm hearing about a new vaccine which protects against or helps you mitigate the effects of RSV as well as the flu, one shot for both. Do I get that right? It's two vaccines, but in one injection. So the, you can mix vaccines in one syringe. It's, that's, that's what it is. So it's the new RSV vac, newer RSV vaccine versus the the, the typical. I mean, in, including the um, the yearly flu vaccine that we modify every year depending on what strains are coming. So, what do you think? So, Dr. Jonathan Bayouk, I would appreciate your telling us whether or not there will be enough of these vaccines available, because we often hear about how, from year to year, we hear about. Well, there wasn't enough of this year's vaccine and that sort of thing. Will these, will the new uh, Omicron variant vaccine be widely available, and will the RSV vaccine be widely available? So they're different. Um, so the, the RSV vaccine and the, and then the monovalent vaccines for COVID are not the same manufacturer. The the the, the problem that we have with the COVID vaccine is that it now we have to buy it. So whereas when the initial COVID vaccines came out, they were all free. So what may happen is, you know, like in my practice, for example, in order for me to get the vaccine, I have to purchase it and it's expensive. 
So if I, if I have to make a prediction about how many patients I think will take it, otherwise I'll take a loss. And, th and that's true for every medical establishment. Uh, that the reverse is true for the flu. The flu is, is very well covered and COVID generally is covered by insurance. Um, but that population of people is pretty well predictable in the past, somewhere between 25 and 35% of the US population gets the flu vaccine, which seems really low, but, and it is but uh, it's not always given. So there should, be an, there, will, there should be enough manufactured vaccine, whether or not we'll be able to get it at, the, at your particular pharmacy, wherever you are, is gonna depend on what the pharmacy purchases. So Bill and I are in, a, in an older demographic. Uh, no jokes, please. Leave us alone, we can't help it. But uh, for most of our listeners, for people who aren't uh, older, what, what should, what do you, recommend that they get in the way of flu vaccines, protections against RSV, is that appropriate, or, and or COVID, and what other vaccines do you think? What should people be anticipating they'll be doing this fall in order to mitigate against the, the, the terrors of these viruses? So um, I'm a huge vaccine proponent. You know, I've certainly seen my share of people who had vaccine reactions uh, over the over the years I've been practicing. I'm a vaccine immunologist, so I deal with both aspects of it. I absolutely think that people should get the vaccines. Everybody should be getting the monovalent COVID vaccine if they don't want to get sick, which I think most people don't want to get sick. The RSV and flu vaccine for people certainly over 65 potentially over, you know, and the flu vaccine for everybody is, a, is always a good idea. The RSV component is really an individual choice, but, but I think it's very good. And if I can get it covered, I will get it myself. I'm not over 60. The, um, but I think it's, it's very a good idea to get vaccines because they really help. So I know when, when COVID first blossomed and when we first started having availability of vaccines, uh, there were centers that we went to, the Northampton Senior Center. You could get it there. There were places in every community you would go to for dispensing these vaccines. Then it became our local pharmacies, where most of us, I think, went and got our shots. Uh, is is that what's going to happen again? Is it going to continue to be at the pharmacy where you go to get your vaccines or your doctor's sure. office? I, I think for sure the pharmacies and also at the doctor's offices. Uh, I don't know whether or not that, that there's, I mean, from the Bay State perspective, I'm not, I, I work very closely with them. I mean, I work, I'm the division chief there, so I have conversations with, with the pharmacy there. I'm not aware of that being offered any more than to, for the Bay State staff, employees and physicians, et cetera. The, um, but there may be other organizations like the Senior Center that offer it, but I'm not sure. Doctor, I'd be interested to know, uh, and I, this really comes from uh, reading pretty extensively about uh, the Kennedy candidacy for president based significantly on being an anti-vaxxer. What do you say to people who claim that vaccines have a detriment and that they're dangerous and that they cause uh, other diseases uh, and, uh, and the adverse reactions are significant? What's your response to that? Well, uh, well, I mean, my, my professional response, my personal response. I'll go with the professional one. The, um, what I tell people, and I certainly encounter that, is you know, that there, I'm a scientist. So there's no data to, to suggest some of the conspiracy theories that 
Mr. Kennedy and others like him. And there's, there was quite a few of them uh, and they've all been debunked one way or the other, but they, they have a, you know, a following and, and those, some of those folks, you're not going to change their mind. And it's up to them. My job as a doctor is to tell you my best advice based on my training and my education and all of that. And your job is to decide what you want to do. Uh, I'm not the vaccine police. However, uh, if you don't want to be sick, vaccines are very effective. Uh, does it, are, do they cause side effects? Well, yes. There's two types of medications, including vaccines. There's those that don't work and those that have side effects. So sometimes you're going to have them. And you know that is a risk that you take when you take any intervention. So, you know, whether you take an antibiotic or whether you take a vaccine, but this, this concept that vaccines are somehow this, you know, insidious, horrible thing is, is ludicrous and there's no science to support that. Do you, we have, I believe now, 1.15 million people have died in this country from COVID or, or comorbidity uh, involving COVID. Uh, do you think this fall and winter, are we going to see those uh dreadful numbers on our screens again as we have for the past three falls and winters so every year and it's gotten better and there's a bunch of reasons for that one most people have either been vaccinated or had the infection which will give them some immunity the other piece is we have much better antiviral medications to help with people yes there will be people who die of covid that will never stop just like there's people who will die of RSV and people who will die of the flu and the human metanema virus and a whole host of other viruses that take people out. Most of the time, there are people who are older uh, and not just older, but older and also have other medical problems. And so, you know, th that is going to happen. But as far as it being anywhere like it was in 2020, uh, no, I do not think that's going to happen. That's really my last question is I have all these testing kits. Um, and I, they have expiration dates. How carefully should we respect the expiration dates, or can we can we rely on on them still being good a little bit after those dates? I wouldn't. You would not. You know, the I, I wouldn't. They're not that expensive, and if if the reagents are dried out or or expired, you don't know. And if you you know if you really want a valid test, you need to have one that's not expired. Yeah, that that said, what's on the box of the test? actually is uh, modified in many instances by what the federal FDA has said, and it's on the website for, with regard, and they, the website specifically says this manufactured lot has been extended for six months or a year, whatever it is. So what's on the box is not necessarily what the FDA says. That's a good says. thing to know. I didn't know that, Bill. Dr. Yeah, John. sure. You can, you can certainly look, look that up, and, but if, if it is actually expired, then, I, then what I said, I, I would say the same. But if it's if it's been extended, just like epin, uh, injectable epinephrine, at when there was a shortage, the FDA extended the expiration date on package for four months. So you know that's not acceptable to schools and daycares and whatever. But the bottom line is is that it, the medicines will still work, and that may be the truth for the test. But you'd have to look that up. Jonathan Bayek, I can't tell you how uh, how comforting it is to have the opportunity to speak with you. You're the um, chief for the Bay State Health System of immunology uh, and you are a real resource for this region and we thank you so much for sharing your extensive knowledge with us and uh we'll try to exploit you again as this season develops thank you for joining thank us thank you okay um, this is talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg get takeout save 30 percent 
Get candles or hit the links. Save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Showers and thunderstorms this morning. Some of them could be strong to severe. Give yourself an extra couple of minutes on the morning commute. Then just the chance for a scattered shower or thunderstorm this afternoon with some clearing, a high of 78 to 82. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 54 to 60. Sun cloud mix, chance for a sprinkle tomorrow, a high of 72 to 76, mostly sunny in 80s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. When I woke up this morning, I was thinking about how, uh, what are the introductory remarks for this next guest? I'm just so excited to, uh, frankly, meet and talk to our next guest. And, and what I couldn't help but think about is uh, we're so lucky here. The, the, uh, the trip to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame from Amherst, Massachusetts, it's just a short uh, hop, skip, and jump down Route 91. But in fact, this trip to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame took about 52 years. And with us to talk about that long and remarkable trip with an incredibly wonderful ending is Coach Dave Hickson of Amherst College, who uh, shepherded uh, the basketball program for 42 years after being a student beginning in 1971 and a student athlete. So we really do have 52 years of Amherst College under your belt. Coach, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. So you, uh, you have joined the Immortals up on the Mount Olympus of, uh, of basketball in the Springfield Hall of Fame last Saturday when you were inducted, along with some very eminent names of basketball heroes. Um, so there you were rubbing elbows with these incredible people, including the people that sort of ushered you in, which are two of your colleagues, John Calipari, coached at UMass, and um, Jim Calhoun, who coached uh, an illustrious career at, uh, at UConn, both Hall of Famers. But you decided to just immerse yourself in family and friends and former athletes. Why? Well, those were the people who, uh, that was the reason I was there. In other words, this was not a single person who achieved something. It was uh, 
you know, it was a whole bunch of people. They always say it takes a village and, uh, you know, whether it was my players and, and they're solely responsible really as far as wins and losses and, and the things that we achieved, but my family who supported me uh, the whole way, um, you know, you just don't get there without your mom and dad and their influence on me. Um, you know, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, I, I only had, they told me I had six minutes. I, I think the big boys took more like 20 or 25 each, but uh, they told me six minutes and I'm the rookie on the block. So I tried to keep it at six. Somebody told me I went eight. And uh, I guess that happens when you're live and, and, you know, just not reading off the teleprompter, but actually interacting a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it was, I, I could have been up there all day long thanking the people who were really responsible for my being there. Yeah. It was a multi-decade uh, ride that you took that brought you to that moment and to summarize it in six minutes is kind of challenging for the best of uh, writers and speakers, I think. But um, I, I love that you deflected so much to to your players and to your family. Did it ever, it, it, was there ever a point where you as a Division three coach saw the Hall of Fame in your future? When did that happen for you? Yeah, you know, I don't really think so. I think that uh, because those are, as I ended my speech, you know, those are my heroes, the gods of the game. And I grew up right next to Boston uh, in Andover, Mass. And we used to go and watch the Celtics and, you know, with Bill Russell, the Jones boys, Havlicek, Heinz and Cousy and on and on. I mean, just name the Celtics. And I don't know if there's enough room for me in the hall. And so uh, it was one of those things. And then, you know, I got nominated a year ago and it didn't go anywhere. And that's typically what happens and has happened to any division threes that have got nominated. It happens to a lot of folks, quite frankly, and they nominated 37 again this year. And, uh, you know, when I got pushed to a finalist and there were only eight of us left and some of the names that I, that I, that I got selected over were just mind boggling to me. And so then it became somewhat of reality when there were only eight of us left, but then I counted on my hands and I counted five great ones. And I thought, well, they're not going to take too many. They're not going to take eight. And uh, so I'm thinking, well, who's the first man out? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be the junior college fellow? Is it going to be the women's coach in Texas? Is it going to be uh, Becky Hammond? I don't know. Who's it going to be? And so they took them. And uh, it was quite a process. I mean, there was a lot of two different voting committees and a very high percentage of must-gets and votes. And so I didn't really know. But once I became a finalist, I thought, like, okay, now we're in it possibility real possibility so how how important is it for you personally and as a coach that you're the first division three coach to ever be inducted into the basketball hall of fame well i think it's important in that perhaps it opens up the door for other division three coaches we have a lot of great coaches a lot of great coaches who have chosen to spend lifetimes uh in situations like i had uh, rather than try to jump to the next level and chase it. And uh, great teachers, great mentors, and great basketball coaches, quite frankly. And uh, so I think it's really important along those lines. I think that, uh, you know, I think for me personally, again, I, and I know it sounds like I deflect a lot, but it's because it's the way I feel. I think, I think that if all those people who were part of this take a piece of it and feel like they were a true part of it, then it's worth a lot more to me than, it's, than it, if it's just me. I mean, I, I really, and we had a party after the, the induction and, uh, you know, it, it about brings you to tears to have so many people come back from all over the country and, 
you know, and say ni- nice things. I'm not a guy that likes to hear a lot of nice things. You know, I, I like to hear them, but it makes me very emotional. And uh, so it was really, uh, for all those reasons, it, it's great. But I do hope it opens the doors up, uh, you know, for for Division Three coaches. Uh, I'm proud to carry that banner. Coach, for those of our listeners who don't follow basketball and or don't follow college sports, could you explain to us, please, the divisions, what Div 3 means and how it compares, how those divisions compare and why various students play in various divisions? Right. So uh, Division 3 basically means non-scholarship, all based on financial aid. So there are no athletic scholarships. If you have a a proud dad who said, hey, my son's going, you know, to this Division three school on a full athletic scholarship. He's not telling you the right thing. It's it's everything's based on financial aid uh, and it goes through the federal government. It goes through the school. Financial aid has certain guidelines. You can't doctor that. So if we really found a kid we really wanted, uh, we couldn't pad his financial aid and pay him more money than someone else did to try to get them. But Amherst College is not an easy college to get into, so we're really talking about student-athletes, real student-athletes. Yeah, and, and, and trust me, the student did about that in some of my press conferences that uh, I didn't have to worry about, you know, keeping my kids as good students because the school did that. I mean, they really did. And we had, we had kids miss games, not often, but kids miss practices, certainly for academic reasons. Uh, but, you know, Division One is, is scholarship. Division Two is full scholarship. And uh, the Ivy League, which is plays Division One, uh, is not. They are they're just like we are. Uh, they're financial aid only. But you can see what happens to them when they get out of, like their little nest of the Ivy League, and they play a Duke or a Kansas. You know, it's it's a forty point game, and so uh, there's a big difference. You know, it's student athlete, not athlete student. Uh, matter of fact, with the one and done, there's a lot of schools now that you know the kids barely go to school. Never mind even think about a degree. And so Amherst, you know, these kids come to Amherst uh, because it's going to give them a life after. And they love to play basketball at a high level. And so it's uh, it's the perfect combination for me. It's uh, it's the reason I stayed. I believe in that. I actually lived it for four years. And so, uh, yeah, it's good. Well, and, and, and that's my last question for you, Coach. You not, you not only uh, uh, were a pioneer in terms of Division Three coaches and the Hall of Fame, uh, but you also, Amherst College, you are Amherst College. You went there as a student and as an athlete and then stayed for over four decades as a coach, and now you've put Amherst College in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. How meaningful is that to you? Yeah, and that is really meaningful. I mean, I, I again, in my speech, I said... Uh, I said, I'm not on TV night after night of the talk shows, but I do have a story. And my story really is a 50-year love affair with a school and a sport. And, uh, you know, I put a little a little line in for my, for my freshman soccer players because for 23 years I coached soccer too. And that's what you do sometimes at the Division three level. And I actually coached 10 years of track. And so I was the head women's soccer coach for a year. So in addition to basketball, I wore a lot of hats. But uh, it really... You know, during my era at, at Amherst, it was a love affair. I thought, I thought it was, as we all do with, with our memories, I thought it was the Camelot years of Amherst. I thought they were the greatest years, not just for basketball, but we had, I think, our football team won three or four NASCAC championships. 
a lacrosse team went to the Division Three Final Four. Our women's basketball team won a couple Division Three championships. And so, uh, you know, it was a great it was a great time. And and I have to tell you that my kids have my kids my players, you know, have gone on to do great things, uh, and they give back. And that's the wonderful thing they give back and uh, financially, but but more than anything with sort of their passion and love and and sending other kids on and helping out kids. So when I have kids go through school, somebody will say to me, hey coach, they'll call me and they'll, they haven't played for 10 years and they'll call me and say, hey coach, my daughter is thinking about going into film. Can you help me out? And I'll say, give me a half hour. I'll make three or four calls and connect them <laughs> with some people. And it's it's amazing the family that we've built. It really, it really is. Well, it's amazing the number of lives that you've touched and the successes you've helped achieve for others and this entire region. We're so proud of you, Coach, and congratulations. It's a great achievement. Uh, anybody who reaches the highest levels of their profession uh, usually feels good about themselves, but you feel good about not only yourself, but everyone who brought you there. So congratulations to you, your college, your former students, and thank you so much for spending time with us today. You're entirely welcome. I really enjoyed it. Good. Coach Hickson, good luck. We'll take a thank break. You. We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. All eyes are on the Iron Horse Music Hall after Mass Live reported that signature sounds in the parlor room are in talks to potentially buy the quintessential Northampton music venue. Jim Olson, the founder and president of Signature Sounds, went public with their hopes to buy the venue this week. But it's not a done deal and other businesses are also interested. Since the pandemic, most of the music venues owned by real estate mogul Eric Sewer have sat vacant, including the Iron Horse, the Calvin Theater, the Basement, and Pearl Street Nightclub. In February, the Northampton License Commission revoked the liquor license for the Pearl Street music venue due to its failure to reopen and threatened to do the same for Sewer's other music venues unless they reopen with some frequency. Sewer says he's been unable to fully reopen his venues due to staffing shortages and the inability to book music acts that turn a profit for his businesses. A 10-year-old child who was shot in Springfield earlier this week has tragically passed away, according to the Hampton District Attorney's Office. On Monday afternoon, a neighbor, identified as 34-year-old Victor Nieves, shot himself, a woman, and two children in their apartment on Berkshire Avenue. 52-year-old Kim Fairbanks of Springfield and Nieves were both found dead on the floor from gunshot wounds. Fairbanks was the grandmother of three siblings that were found in a bedroom, ages 12, 10, and 5 two of which were injured by gunshots and taken to the hospital. The 10-year-old girl was flown to Boston Children's Hospital, where she passed away Thursday morning. The 12-year-old girl who was shot is in stable condition at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield. The 5-year-old boy was unharmed. A town meeting will be held on Monday to discuss lowering the speed limit in West Springfield. Mayor Will Reichelt said on social media that the town council is considering reducing the town's speed limit from 30 to 25 miles per hour. The town has implemented other safety measures in recent months, including speed bumps along Amistown Road. The hearing will be held Monday at 7 p.m. in the Town Hall Auditorium for residents to voice their comments and concerns. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money 
which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. At the Amherst Montessori School, they believe that your child is inherently intelligent and that hands-on learning is critical to their developing brains. At the Amherst Montessori School, your child will be empowered to explore, discover, and learn through all five senses in mixed-age classrooms. At the Amherst Montessori School, the classrooms are filled with sunlight, natural materials, and views outside to the playgrounds. The Amherst Montessori School is now accepting applications for three- to six-year-old students for fall 2023 at amherstmontessori.org. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. Get on your bike in September with the 13th annual Will Bike for Food, benefiting the Food Bank of Western Mass. This fun cycling event takes place September 24th at the Lions Club Pavilion in Hatfield. Cyclists of all ages and levels can pedal towards a hunger-free future while cycling through the scenic Connecticut River Valley and then celebrating at the exclusive after party. So join a team of friends, family, or co-workers, or ride and fundraise yourself. Register today at willbikeforfood.org. Presented by Stop and Shop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Well, last week we had the excitement of a bear right outside of our station in the parking lot behind Thorns, and we spoke uh, to um, the supervisor for the Connecticut district, the Connecticut, what's it called, Connecticut River? Connecticut Valley. Connecticut District Valley, Office, yeah. sorry. Uh, district of Massachusetts Fisheries and Wildlife, and he was talking about the bear and, and uh, the effort to get the bear down out of the tree. Uh, and uh, The successful getting the bear out of the tree, we should note. Very successful, and, and no harm to the bear or to any people. That was great. And at the same time, we have um, another supervisor of the Central District, uh, Todd Olenek, from Massachusetts. We'll just say Mass Wildlife, I think is what we call it, Fisheries and Wildlife. And uh, we have both of them in studio, and it is, uh, we're so lucky to have them here because we're entering into that season when so many people have encounters with uh, local animal populations. So I, I want to thank both Todd and Joe for joining us. Let me start with you, Todd. Um, so we, Joe was telling us, stop with your bird feeders, <laughs> uh, be careful with your trash, and stop attracting bears. It's not safe for either the bear population or the human population. Why is it unsafe for bears to feed bears? Well, Buzz, well, first of all, thanks for having us this morning um, and giving us the opportunity to get our message out, right? Uh, so it's bad for bears or any wildlife, really, to become habituated to human food sources. We don't want them to become dependent on human food sources. Especially a large bear, a large animal like a bear, if they start associating food with humans, then they're going to end up getting themselves into some bad situations. We've had cases where uh, bears that have become habituated have broken into people's houses because they can smell food in the kitchen, 
And uh, those encounters don't, typically don't end well for the bear. That doesn't sound like a fun... Uh, for the bear, <laughs> but what about the human? You walk into your... Yeah, uh, well, it's certainly an exciting day for the person. But um, <laughs> yeah, Come on, it was probably a pretty exciting <laughs> day for the bear. I mean, how often do yeah, you get invited uh, to someone's living room? Unfo- ask to sit down, watch the TV, share with the jelly beans. Yeah, unfortunately, that sometimes is the last day for the bear. That's oh, what I'm trying to get at. Ooh. So when we have those kinds of conflicts... Uh, um, there's a saying in, in our community, a fed bear is a dead bear. And uh, that, mm. that holds true for those types of situations. That's actually uh, really sad. Joe, just before we, Joe Rogers, just before we went on the air, you were saying we should never have bird feeders. And I know uh, my wife and I, we, we're pretty good about taking it down when we know that bears are afoot. A you know? So we usually wait till November or something like that. Then we put our bird feeder out right in front of our picture window there. We yep. call it bird TV. We sit with our coffee and we watch all winter long the birds. What's wrong with that? Well, how, where should I start? I guess the, a good place to start is to say that the birds don't really need it, right? So it's the, um, you know, the, the, the idea that they're, you know, hurting at this time of the, you know, in the winter months and things like that, that we're going to need to put that food out for calories for the animal. And the reality is, like Todd was just saying, um, you know, that creates opportunities for animals to come in that we don't necessarily want to see like bear to take advantage of those uh, high-calorie foods and, um learn those bad habits. When you think about a a single bird feeder full of seed um, and you measure the amount of calories that are available in that, uh, for a single bear, you're talking about, you know, equivalent in human speak, it would be like five cheese pizzas worth of of calories in a single bird feeder. Um, And so that's the kind of enticement that you're handing out to these, uh, you know, these animals and these wildlife. So there are other ways to encourage wildlife to your, your, um, your home and your property. There are things you can plant in your landscape. Um, but yeah, putting feeders out, unfortunately, during many parts of the year, is just a bad idea all around. Does water work as well? Fountains, for example? I mean, birds like fountains. Maybe they'll, we get a lot of birds in our fountain. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, and that's okay? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. It's a more natural imbalance with kind of the, the suburban area that you're you know, living in. So, it, yeah. Water instead of pizza. <laughs> Fewer calories. Hi, would you like a pizza or would you like a glass of water? I, I, okay. I can predict the answer. And there's, there's plenty of water in New England, right? It's not specific to your house. So especially water, this year. This year especially, yeah. It's, it's really kind of hampered some of our um, survey activity, some of our habitat treatment activity, uh, all the wet weather that we've been having. Well, let's talk about that, uh, Supervisor Todd Atlantic. How has your job changed as a supervisor for mass wildlife and, and, and fisheries as well, uh, given the deluges that we just keep suffering over and over? Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's uh, something that we face differently every year. You know, we're not, never sure what, uh, we can't predict it. Uh, we know from, you know, climate science that um, in New England, we should anticipate more wet weather more frequently. Um, but it's unpredictable. And this year we've had a lot of wet weather. For us, it means that the stream levels are, are very high. The water levels are very high. Um, the uh, cubic feet per second flows are very high. We've been unable to put out our temperature tracking loggers uh, because of the high water conditions. We've been, been unable to do a lot of our electroshock surveys for our cold water refugia streams. Um, what does to, that mean? So uh, every year we have uh, a number of 
streams that are cold water resources. Uh, they um, support cold water fish. And every year we'll go out and we'll test those streams to make sure uh, they're still in good condition and that those fish populations are still doing well. And the way that we do that in the smaller streams is we have a backpack with an electroshocking unit. It's not as scary as it sounds. It's more like, uh, think of an electric fence around a cattle field or something. We put a small electrical current in the water. It stuns the fish. It doesn't kill them. It stuns them momentarily, and we're able to scoop them up with a net, put them into a, a bucket, and then um, once we gather enough from that reach of stream, we can measure them, uh, de determine what species they are, and we can tally all that information. And then looking at that data year over year over year, we can get a sense of the health of that particular area of a stream. And when there's high water levels like we have now, what's that, how's the impact? What impact is it going to have on the health of the fish and uh, other wildlife in there? Well, they've evolved to deal with that. So um, it, it shouldn't necessarily have a negative impact on them, uh, but it definitely hampers our ability to study them because the water is, uh, has a lot of sediment load in it. It's very turbid. We can't see the fish when they do get shocked. We can't see them in order to scoop them up. So we don't dare do it uh, this time of year because we're going to be missing a lot of data. Got it. Yeah. And in some cases, uh, you know, in this area along the Connecticut River, many of the boat ramps have been closed. We're only recently reopening those from some of that high water flood. So even launching a boat to be able to go out and do surveys for the past, um, you know, several weeks has been difficult um, with these large storms that we've had this year. So Joe Rogers, uh, supervisor of the Connecticut uh, Valley um, District of Massachusetts Fisheries and Wildlife, uh, can I, I want to go up at about 10,000 feet. It seemed to me 30, 40 years ago that fisheries and wildlife was really focused on recreation, hunters, fishing, that sort of thing. And it seems to me that there's much more, much greater awareness of climate and climate change that the division has to deal with, contend with right now. Is that, is that Sure, I think fair? that's a fair assessment. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think the agency mission, agency goals have been, um, you know, changing over the years. Um, so, yes, we were very heavily into fishing and hunting, which we still are a very large component of. We um, still issue those licenses, make those regulations. Um, but all along, those were really about managing populations on the landscape. So, our deer season had a, a huge um, effect on what the deer population was on the landscape. Uh, bear season had to do with bears on the landscape. And so um, all along, it has been about conservation and, and wildlife management. Um, where we see changes is a more increased emphasis on biodiversity. Um, some of those smaller, less known species like, you know, butterflies and bees, all the way to the more common, you know, deer and uh, bear. And so we've really kind of diversified our mission in that way as well as the amount of property that we've been able to conserve um, his, you know, over the last 50 years has changed dramatically. So across the state, we probably have about 250,000 acres that we're now uh, conserving. And so the, all those wildlife management areas are you know, expanding our ability to manage the populations on the landscape, so more rare and endangered species work. Before we lose track of this, I'd be interested to know, are there hunting seasons with guns for bears and for deer and approximately how many licenses and or animals are taken out 
and do you restrict on purpose the number? Well, we, we always have a limit, right? So that's, the, that's the, one of the mainstays of regulated hunting, right? Regulated hunting uh, has been in effect in the United States for 100 years um, because we do want to conserve those species. We want to be able to take and allow people to take some for food uh, while at the same time maintaining that population. So it's interesting, we're talking about bears. The, there's a uh, bear hunting season that begins on September 5th. So it's right around the corner. Uh, there's a three-week season in September. We also have a uh, three, I think it's four to six-week season spanning October and November. And then there's another bear season uh, that coincides with the deer shotgun season, which starts uh, the Monday after Thanksgiving and lasts for two weeks. I would bet that there are a lot of non-hunters listening who mm -hmm. say, wait a second, this sounds horrifying. We allow people to shoot bears and shoot deers, to which there actually is a conservationist's answer, which uh, I'd appreciate. Absolutely. Um, you know, it is, um, for, for a lot of people, you know, we do surveys with the hunting community, and we've realized that and the most recent results, that it's an important food source for a lot of people in Massachusetts. There were over uh, 1.8 million meals that were derived from hunting uh, last year. And we've started a program where uh, Hunters for the Harvest, where hunters can actually donate food um, that's processed through a licensed processing facility and donated to people who need food. So there's that aspect of it. Um, the food resource is tremendous, but from a conservation standpoint, there are areas in the state where the deer populations are so high that they do damage to our forest resources. They're essentially eating themselves out of house and home, and that damage doesn't affect just the deer. It affects every other species that uses that same landscape. There's a phrase out there that says, you know, deer live in fear of wolves, but mountains live in fear of the deer. Um, for just that reason, because they can be over browsing the forests and the areas that are, um, you know, in those uh, communities that it can have an Im a real impact on the landscape. Well, we are just so lucky to be here with two supervisors from uh, the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. And uh, when we come back, uh, speaking of overpopulations, what about all these turkeys? We're going to be right back with Todd Atlantic and Joe Rogers. Shoved down and pushed it round. All I remember was a moaning sound. I don't remember nothing more except. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to three Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. WHMP.
Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip, or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all-natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work again like they're supposed to. And there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option. And the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450. I'm Scott Trout, attorney and CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Schedule an appointment with one of Cordell & Cordell's Boston area attorneys, 10 Cabot Road, Suite 210, Medford, Massachusetts, 02155. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. We're talking to Joe Rogers and Todd Alanik. And I wanted to ask, I, uh, there's always been wild turkeys around our house up in, in the hill towns, but I'm seeing so many of them. They're filthy, but I'm seeing a lot of them. So why are we seeing so many turkeys? Well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right, Buzz? <laughs> I, I think they're fantastic. If I was um, a Tom, I'd think they're beautiful. <laughs> We, uh, you know, uh, it's always um, great to remind folks that turkeys were extirpated from Massachusetts. We didn't have any uh, after colonial times and all the uh, forest cutting that was happening back then. The habitat was gone for them, essentially. And um, it wasn't until Mass Wildlife started reintroducing them in the late 60s, early 70s, that the population even came back into the state. And over that last, what, 50 years, we've seen what the population has done. The uh, first groups were trapped and transplanted from New York State, where they had wild birds, and the population's just blossomed. Since is, there, is there a hunting season specifically for turkeys? Yeah, there's a spring hunting season, which lasts for four weeks, and you can take two, um, well, we, in regulations, called bearded birds. Most people think of them as the males. And in the fall, you can take one additional bird of either sex. I, I remember one Thanksgiving morning, we looked out, and there were about 100 of them. And I, <laughs> I opened the window and said, are you stupid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they are delicious. Yeah, they are delicious. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I've never had a wild one. Yeah. Does it taste like a... Uh, it tastes like a turkey. How about that? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> so, Joe Rogers, uh, a word of wisdom you'd like to leave our listeners with regarding what the mission of the division is and the protection of our landscape and our wildlife. Sure. I think, um, you know, as I said earlier, we manage wildlife. Our mission is to manage all wildlife. Um, we also promote people to get out and enjoy the landscapes that are around us uh, responsibly and, um, you know, in balance with what's uh, what's around us. So, Get outside, enjoy some of our properties. Um, if you don't have that opportunity, go online, visit us there. And uh, how do we do that, Todd Olenek? How do we find you online? 
Uh, if you Google, I'm not going to try to uh, enunciate the URL, right? Okay. Google uh, Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife, or simply type in Mass Wildlife, One and word. we'll be one of the first pages that comes yes, up. Yes, that's what I did. One word, Mass Wildlife. Listen, I really want to thank both of you for uh, not just joining us today, but for all that you do to protect the, uh, the wildlife and the fish in this region. And... Um, in these times of climate, it's really important to have people protecting the outdoors and let, allow us to enjoy it. For the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us. Remember, like these guys, walk the walk. I'm hungry, getting so sick of cold turkey. I'm so alone. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. Looking to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? It's the music you grew up with. WHMP and the News will be right here when you get back. The Valley's Pure Oldies, 96.9 and 100.5.